Well, good morning, Harvest. My name is Pastor Ryan, if you do not know me. Um, I'm filling in for our senior pastor who you just saw in India who's over there teaching. Pray for him and his energy and his protection. We're going to look into God's word now. I have a question for you. Have you ever been in a conversation that went something like this? Jesus was a good man, but he wasn't God. Or maybe, you know, Jesus never said he was God. He said he was the son of God. Anyone ever had a conversation like this or heard something like that? I was actually in a group of people once and a lady actually said that very thing that Jesus never said he was God. He said he was the son of God. And I tried to explain how that term son of God is a title that reflects Jesus's relationship to the father and how it was used to specify his deity. But she didn't accept that. I had another conversation with a very hardened atheist one time, and when I asked him, who do you think Jesus was, he said, just a guy wanting to get something started. I'll be honest with you, I'm not even sure what he meant by that. Who is Jesus? This is a question that has been asked by so many people throughout hundreds and thousands of years. And yet that very question is answered in the pages of Scripture time and time again. So this morning, I want to answer that question from a very famous passage from the book of Colossians. One of the most famous passages that addresses the deity of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? I want to give you four evidences of Jesus Christ's deity. So if you haven't done so already, please take your Bible and turn to the book of Colossians. We've been studying this in our Harvest students in our youth ministry on Wednesday nights, and I'm delighted to bring you God's word this morning. Colossians. If you don't know where that is, it's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, it's page 983. Before we read this passage, I want to set the stage, okay? We've been studying the book of Romans with our senior pastor, and it's been awesome. It's been a great time uh, of him unpacking the book of Romans with us. And there's a similarity between the church at Rome and the church at Colossae in that it was not started by Paul. The church at Colossae was not one where Paul went into the town and started the church. Researchers actually believe that the church got its start during Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus, what probably happened, a man named Epaphras, who's mentioned in Colossians 1.7, came to Ephesus where Paul was, got saved, and then carried the message back to Colossae and started the church. Praise the Lord. We believe in church plants, amen? And we love that. But then, shortly after that, contamination. A different doctrine, different doctrines rather, were invading the church. Something that is popularly known as the Colossian hearsay was threatening the purity of the gospel. And it's believed that while Paul was in prison in Rome some years later, Epaphras came back to him needing help to refute this hearsay. What was this hearsay? We're not 100% sure, but as we read the book of Colossians and we study other passages, what we believe was invading the church was a form of Gnosticism. The Gnostics actually believed they, that they had a deep, you would even call it a special knowledge of God. They believed that you got to God through a process of rigid legalistic works. 
They taught the Old Testament dietary laws you might be familiar with. They taught something called asceticism, which was strict self-denial, a rigorous abstinence from self-indulgences. They believed these things were necessary to reach God. So what Paul did, Epaphras came and he wrote the book of Colossians, gave it to Epaphras, and we have today what is known as the book of Colossians. Our passage today is Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and Paul gives us four evidences from this passage on the deity of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ is all we need for salvation. So read this passage with me. Follow along as I read, please. First Col- or Colossians 1, 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is the head of all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Some think this passage was a hymn or maybe even a confession about Jesus Christ that was commonly known in the church. And maybe that can be. We just got done singing some great music about Jesus Christ. Songs can be very powerful, right? They can be very powerful, and that's one reason why we here at Harvest, we strive to find worship music that truly addresses who Jesus Christ is. We want to lock true ideas about Jesus in our minds, and music is a great way to do that. So we start our first point this morning with this correct view of Jesus Christ. Point one, Jesus is God as evidenced by his role in creation. Jesus is God as evidenced by his role in creation. Verse 15 reads, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? Well, that word for image there is the Greek word icon. It's where we get the English word icon. And it means likeness or portrait or living image even. Jesus is the image. He is the icon of the invisible God. He is a copy of the Father in that he reveals to us the Father. Raise your hands if you've ever used a Xerox machine. Yeah, absolutely. You know, sometimes it gets it right. Sometimes, for whatever reason, it's way off the original. Well, let me say this about Jesus Christ. He is a perfect representation of God because he reveals the Father to us. Jesus even said of himself in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. This passage in 1 Corinthians, it just bleeds Trinity. It just bleeds Trinity. We believe, as we just sung, we believe in one God existing eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each person is God, and yet each person is different from one another. Perhaps you've seen a diagram like this. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. 
Interestingly enough, just a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the Trinity with our children at home, and we were explaining this very thing about Jesus, about God being one in three persons, and one of the kids said, that's confusing. True. It is confusing. I cannot, in my finite, limited human brain, completely understand how God exists as one and three. It doesn't make perfect sense, but I believe it. And it's okay that it doesn't make perfect sense because do you want a God you can figure out? I think sometimes in our flesh we do, yes. We want a God we can absolutely figure out. But honestly, do you? Do you want a God that is so simple we can understand him? Would he really be God? Would he really be worthy of our worship? I mean, let's be honest. We can't even fully understand another person We can't even fully understand ourselves. So to expect that we can come to God and perfectly figure him out is just ludicrous. We can't figure out exactly who he is. Has he communicated certain aspects of his character to us? Absolutely. Can we understand some things? Absolutely. Can we understand all things? No, and I don't believe we'll ever fully understand God, even in glory. I don't believe that we will ever have him completely figured out because he's just that big. He's just that awesome. He's just that deep. He's just that wide. Praise him for his unfathomable ways. Romans eleven thirty three reads, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Jesus is not the Father, but he reveals the Father to us. It's interesting in verse 15 of our passage, God is called invisible. God exists beyond our ability to see him and some believe that we will never not even in heaven see the father that we will see the son but some believe we will never actually see the father John 1:18 reads no one has ever seen God the only God who is at the father's side he has made him known Jesus the second person of the trinity is necessary because he reveals the image of the father to us Warren Risby writes this In his essence, God is invisible, but Jesus Christ has revealed him to us. Nature reveals the existence, power, and wisdom of God, but nature cannot reveal the very essence of God to us. It is only in Jesus Christ that the invisible God is revealed perfectly. Since no mere creature can perfectly reveal God, Jesus Christ must be God. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. Now, I want to point something out because this verse is grossly misused by the Jehovah's Witness. It's grossly misused by the Jehovah's Witness to say that Jesus was the first created being. You see that word there, firstborn? They would say something like, he's the firstborn of creation, so that must mean he was created first, thus making him a created being. What do you think of that, Harvest Decatur? Is Jesus a created being? All right, yeah, I like that. Jesus Christ is not a created being. It's ironic that they would use this passage to argue that point when in fact this passage argues just the opposite. Jesus Christ is not a created being. He could not be a created being and be the perfect image of God. 
He could not be a created being and be the perfect image of the invisible God. So the phrase firstborn of all creation needs some explaining. So the Greek word for firstborn is prototokos, and it means firstborn. As in birth order, I'm actually the firstborn of five children. Many of you out there are firstborns, and that is what it can refer to. But it has another meaning. Prototokos can mean having special status. It can refer to being first in position or rank. You may know that in the Jewish culture, the firstborn son was the one who received the right of inheritance from the father. But you know that the firstborn son was not always the one to receive the blessing. Think of Jacob. He was not the firstborn, but he received the blessing. Yes, out of trickery, but he still received it. But Israel, the nation of Israel, is called Jesus' firstborn, or God's firstborn. Did you know that? It says so in Exodus 4.22, and the idea is repeated in Jeremiah 31.9, which reads, with weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. I have a question. Was Israel the first nation ever? No, it wasn't. But here in our passage, it means highest in rank. And we know that Israel, that the Jews, were God's chosen people. He calls them his firstborn. Think of the head of a police station, often called captain. That doesn't necessarily mean he's the oldest one there, but he's the one with the highest rank of the station. Think about the president. He's certainly not the oldest living man, but he's the highest in rank. And that's the way prototokos, the word firstborn is being used here, that Jesus is of the highest rank of all creation. Why is he of the highest rank of all creation? Well, for one reason, he created all of creation. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was present at creation, Genesis 1. Did you know that? We have this from Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man. Who's the us? God talking among himself the Trinity to create man Jesus was involved in creation and Paul points that out in verse 16 but it's interesting to note Paul doesn't say by him all things were created in heaven on earth visible and invisible the trees the grass the stars you might expect him to say something like that but what he does say is whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities thrones dominions rulers authorities and it's interesting these are actually references to the spiritual world Ephesians 1 20 and 21 reads something similar it reads that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come Those words rule, authority, and dominion, and power were used in Jewish tradition to designate angelic beings that have a high rank among God's host. What Paul says in Ephesians is that Jesus is above them all. What Paul says in Colossians is that Jesus is higher than all because he created them all. Now, some believe 
that part of the Colossian hearsay that was going on, that was circulating in the church, had to do with accessing God through angels. They believed that matter was evil. Matter was inherently evil according to the Gnostics. So because matter was evil and God was holy, you had to get to God through a series of emanations, through a series of angelic beings. That's how you got to God. And all God's people said, that's weird. So Paul's point here in our passage is that Jesus, who had direct contact with humanity, he created all matter, including the spiritual forces, then he must be God because he was before all of them. See, God does not need his creation to reach his creation. They are subject to him. He is not dependent on them. All things were created through him and for him. Everything that Jesus created was for the purpose of pleasing and glorifying himself. All spiritual and physical creations were for the purpose of glorifying God. Your purpose is to glorify God. My purpose is to glorify God. So that leads me to this question. Are you living your life in such a way that brings glory to God? Now, if you're like me, you might say, sometimes. Fair statement. Fair statement. And I would counter by saying, then what needs to change? What in your life, let me put it this way, what hobbies in your life, what, what habits rather in your life need to change in order to better glorify God. Now, some of you, I know you have a list. You can go A, B, C. You've got it right away, and that's, that's great. Get to work, and let's change to glorify God. Some of you might come up short and draw a blank, and that's okay. I would encourage you to ask someone. Ask someone close to you. Ask someone who's going to be gracious but honest. Ask your small group. And then let's get to work. Let's get to work being sanctified by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. What needs to change in my life? So Jesus is God as evidenced by his role in creation. Here's your second point. Jesus is God as evidenced by his power to sustain. Look at verse 17. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Christ existed before all things, and through him all things hold together. Did you know that our very existence today is completely dependent on Jesus Christ holding us together? The word for hold together is synistomy, and it has the idea of enduring or existing. And one of the arguments for the existence of intelligent design is called the teleological argument. Basically what that is, is the idea that the universe has been finely tuned to support life on earth. Did you know that the universe is finely tuned to support life on planet earth? Did you know that there are fundamental constants and quantities that if altered by the slightest degree, no life could exist anywhere in the universe? Let me give you an example. Gravity is a fundamental constant. If the force of gravity varied in by one point, by one part in 10 to the 60th parts, so the force of gravity varies by one part in 10 to the 60th, one with 60 zeros behind it, 
The gravitational pull would either be too weak that nothing would hold together or too strong that everything would collapse. That would be no stars, no planets, no life. Another example, the rate of expansion. You guys know the universe is constantly expanding. If the rate of expansion sped up or slowed down by one part in 10 to the 120th parts, the universe would either expand too rapidly or too slowly to be life prohibiting. That's just two examples out of hundreds of how finely tuned our universe is just to support life on Earth. Even Stephen Hawking could not deny this. Stephen Hawking was an English theoretical physicist, a cosmologist, an author, and an atheist. And he says in his book, A Brief History of Time, the laws of science as we know them at present contain many fundamental numbers like the size of the electric charge of the electron and the ratio of the masses of the proton and the electron. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. That comes from an atheist. We have been finely tuned for life on earth and if any of those constants varied by the slightest degree life on earth would not be possible who holds that together who holds this world together guys we are this short I can't even get my fingers small enough to say that we are we are this shy from flying apart or collapsing in on ourselves who holds that together no mere man, no mere spiritual being, no one less than God could hold the universe together. And that's great, and that's awesome, and that makes for a great argument for divine, uh, uh, divine creator. But let's step in for a second and make it personal. He holds you together physically, yes, but he also holds you together spiritually. He holds you together emotionally. Jesus Christ sustains. You know, all too often we go to things that cannot sustain for refreshment and strength, do we not? We go to hobbies, we go to relationships, we go to money, we go to career. None of those things are bad. They're not bad. But they cannot sustain as Jesus Christ sustains. We can get some encouragement at times, but nothing can sustain like Jesus Christ. If you seek for something else, if you substitute Christ's sustaining power for anything else, ultimately, you will be disappointed. But that being said, I want to say this. Accessing Christ's sustaining power is often through people. We do sometimes go to people as substitutes for Jesus but we need to understand that Jesus also uses people, uses his body, uses the church to help sustain. The question then is this, are we going to the other person because of the other person and who they are, or are we going to this other person hoping to get a dose of Jesus from them? And that's part of the responsibility of the church, to pour into each other the sustaining power of Jesus Christ. Now I suspect on this point, many of you need to hear today. I suspect that though there are many out there who are hanging on by a thread. 
because life is hard. And somebody out there, I suspect, needs to hear that what you need is prayer and the body of Christ to pour into you the sustaining power of Jesus Christ. So I would encourage you, don't leave here today if that's you. Find someone who will pour into you the sustaining power of Jesus Christ. Now, others out there, you guys, you might be doing great, and I understand that. Life is hills and valleys, and you might be doing awesome right now. That's great. So then I would put this challenge to you. Who can you pour into? Is Jesus even bringing to you a face, a name right now that he wants you to pour in his sustaining power? And I would challenge you, if that person is here, don't leave here without doing that. If that person's not here, make that phone call, make that text or whatever needs to happen this week to pour into that. It might be exactly what they need to keep going. Jesus is God is evidenced by his sustaining power, by his power to sustain. Look at verse 18 with me. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus Christ is the head of the body of the church. He is the head. He is the leader. He's the one with superior rank. Not the pastor. Not the elders. Not the worship pastor. As important as they are, they are not the head of the church. The church is called the body of Christ. And just like the human body is controlled by the head, the spiritual body, the church, is controlled by the head, Jesus Christ. He it is who gives life and direction. So here's your third point. Jesus is God as evidenced by his authority over the church. Jesus is God as evidenced by his authority over the church. Jesus is not the assistant. He's not the administrator. He's not the co-pilot. He's the head of the church. He, and he gives, and that gives evidence to his deity. The fact that he's the head of the church gives evidence to his deity, or why else would we worship him? If he wasn't God, if he wasn't the head of the church, why would we get together and sing songs to him? That's kind of weird. I mean, just stop and think about it. We gather once a week and we sing songs. Do you do that at work? Let's get our coworkers together. Let's sing some songs. That's kind of weird unless we're praising one who is worthy of our worship. And who is worthy of our worship but God alone? Jesus Christ started the church. He's the founder of the church. He's the head of the church. I want to throw out some names. Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs, David Green, Bill Gates, Sam Walton. What do these people have in common? CEOs, they're founders. They created companies. They created organizations. And they get a lot of the press. They get a lot of the attention. In their company, they get most of the attention. Why is that? Because they started something. If somebody wants the inside story of how Hobby Lobby got its start, they don't go to the cashier. They go to David Green, if you can get an appointment with him. They go to the founder because he's the one that started it. He's the one that knows the story. He's the one that's calling the shots. 
He's the head of the company. Ergo, why do we give Jesus the attention? Why do we worship and why do we praise him and why do we adore him? Because he started the church. He's the head of it all. He's calling the shots. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In this verse 18, our word, prototokos for firstborn, comes up again. And it says that Jesus is the firstborn, the first in rank to have returned from the dead. Now, somebody out there is saying, wait a minute. Jesus is not the first to have returned from the dead. What about Lazarus? I mean, Jesus raised him. What about the little girl that Jesus raised from the dead? What about that guy in that crazy story in the Old Testament that touched Elisha's bones and came back to life? Do you remember that story? Jesus wasn't the first to come back from the dead. How could he even be the highest ranking person to have come back from the dead? People have come back to life from the dead. True. People have come back to life before Jesus. But there's a difference. Lazarus, the young girl, the man who touched Elisha's bones, and others, they were resuscitated. In other words, their spirit came back to their original body and came back to life. They were resuscitated. Jesus' body was transformed. He was resurrected. Don't confuse the resuscitation from the resurrection. The resurrection comes with the resurrected body, the body that no longer gets sick, the body that no longer ages, the body that no longer gets hurt. That was the body that Jesus returned to. He was the first resurrection, and of course, he's the highest in rank because he's God, and he came back in a brand new body, and by the way, that's the body that you will receive at the second coming of Jesus Christ. I want to read something to you simply to encourage you. This comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 55. You can read it on the screen as, as I read. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that was written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? that's the body that you will receive at the coming of Jesus Christ now who's looking forward to that mm, amen he's the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent the word preeminent is pretuo and it means to hold the highest rank you can catch a theme among the words Paul is using here highest rank among the highest highest in the group first preeminent is to be first Jesus is the first and the most important to be resurrected from the dead furthermore Jesus's resurrection solidifies his importance over everything if there is any doubt as to Jesus's importance it is extinguished by his resurrection Douglas Moo, who is a New Testament commentator, commentator, writes this. 
Christ's supremacy is seen to be the result of his resurrection. This, of course, takes nothing away from the reality of Christ's eternal sovereignty over all creation, but it reflects the common New Testament understanding of Christ's resurrection as having established his power over a fallen and rebellious world in a new degree. To give any weight to the argument denying the preeminence of Christ, that, the, that is, his place and power over this world is foolishness. The resurrection shuts the mouth of any critic. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is God is evidenced by his authority over the church. Here's your final point. Jesus is God as evidenced by his work of reconciliation. Jesus is God as evidenced by his work of reconciliation. Look with me at the remaining verses 19 and 20. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on heaven or in earth making peace by the blood of his cross. The fullness of God dwells in Christ. That idea of fullness, by the way, that harkens back to the glory of God that would fill the tabernacle or fill the temple. The fullness of God is all is that God dwells Jesus Christ. Going back once again to this hearsay that was in the Colossian church, if the Gnostics were teaching that evil is that all matter is evil, and approaching God was only possible through these spiritual angelic spheres, then the idea of one man, Jesus, holding the entirety of God's essence would have obliterated all their religious and philosophical concepts. Just obliterated them. F.F. Bruce writes this, he, that is Christ, is the one all-sufficient intermediary between God and the world of humanity, and all the attributes of God, his spirit, word, wisdom, and glory are disclosed in him. Jesus is full of God. Jesus embodies all of God's godness. That's a word. I just made it. And the Father is pleased by that. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Because of Jesus' work on the cross and the grave, he is, as Isaiah 9, 6 says, the prince of peace. Jesus is involved in the work of reconciliation. The word for reconciliation here is related to the idea of exchanging hostility for friendship. It's related to exchanging hostility to French, for friendship. If there was a place I could go and take a mound of worthless dirt and change it for gold, well, that would be an awesome place. That idea sort of captures what goes on when we come to Christ in faith. The hostility between sinful man and pure God is exchanged for friendship. Do you know that Jesus does the impossible? He does the impossible by taking sinful man and sinless God and creating unity. Now, could that be done by anyone else other than God? 
Could any mere mortal bridge the gap between sinful man and sinless God? Could any sinful broken man bridge the gap for other sinful broken men and women and God? No. Could any created angelic being unite sinful man and perfect God? No. God is the one that we've offended. Our sin offends God So then only God can heal and forgive our sin. If I offend you, I can't go to somebody else to make that right. If I offend Paul Roberts, I can't go to Gary and make it right. Gary would say, what are you talking to me for? Go talk to Paul. It doesn't work that way. So if Jesus isn't God, I can't go to him to get forgiveness of my sins. Only if Jesus were God could I go to him for forgiveness of my sins and be reconciled. Going back to the uh, Jehovah's Witness years ago, I was bringing up this point with some of them. And I said something to that same effect that if I offend God, then only God can forgive my sins. That may Jesus, therefore Jesus must be God. They came back and they said that the way it works is that God loved Jesus so much that it was like he was God even though he wasn't. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. I mean, I love my wife deeply, but my love for her doesn't make her like me even though she's not me. It doesn't work. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Some teach that this verse means universal salvation, that at the end, everyone is going to be saved. That's not what this verse is teaching. It does not square with the New Testament that everyone will be saved. Jesus himself said, some will believe and go to heaven. Others will deny and go to hell. There is no universal salvation. The Bible does not teach that. What this verse does mean by saying that he will reconcile to himself all things is that it will say eventually every knee will submit. Some will submit when it's too late. We will all, both believer and unbeliever, stand before Jesus Christ and Philippians 2, 10 and 11 tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So you're either going to bow the knee now while there is time to accept his offering of salvation, come to Jesus Christ, be forgiven of sins and enter into glory or you will bow the knee at the end of time when we stand before him and it's too late. That's what this verse means. I want to close with this. Jesus is God. It is clear from the Bible he is the second person of the Trinity, the Son, the one who took upon himself the sin of us all so that those who believe would have everlasting life. If this is new to you, if you're struggling with the concept of Jesus being God, if this is something you've never heard before, if you've never had a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you've never asked for forgiveness of your sins and put your faith and trust in him, then I want you to consider your eternal destiny today I want you to consider to putting your faith in Jesus Christ to take away your sin I urge you even 
to receive his offering of salvation. The Bible is clear. It says, all have sinned, all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. The payment for sin is death and hell forever, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, and that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That could be you today if you've never done that. I urge you to do that. After the service, I'll be standing up here. The elders and their wives will be standing up here, and if you've never heard this before, if you've never received Christ, I urge you to come forward, talk to us. We want to talk with you. We want to pray with you. For those of you who believe, I sincerely hope that you are encouraged from today's message. I hope your faith has been strengthened. I hope your confidence in Christ's deity is emboldened. I hope that you are are desirous to go out there and be a better witness for Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? He is creator, sustainer, the head of the church, and reconciler of sinners. If he were not God, how could he be these things? How could he be worthy of our worship? I'll close with this last quote from F.F. Bruce, and then we'll pray and have communion. F.F. Bruce writes, the one through whom the divine work of redemption has been accomplished is the one through whom the divine act of creation took place in the beginning. His mediatorial relation to the created universe provides a setting to the gospel of salvation which helps his people to appreciate that gospel the more. For those who have been redeemed by Christ, the universe has no ultimate terrors. They know that their redeemer is also creator, ruler, and goal of all. Will you bow with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, awesome Jesus, holy Jesus, God Almighty, thank you for who you are. You are good. You are awesome. You are powerful. You are righteous. You are holy. Thank you for, your, for creating us. Thank you for sustaining us. Thank you for being the head of this church. Thank you for reconciling us. Your work is amazing and undeserved. Would you teach us more? Would you give us strength, Lord, to those in this room that may be hanging on by a thread, would you pour into them today? For those in this room who may not know you, would you give them courage to come to know you, I pray. We love you, Lord. Use us for your good and your glory, we pray. In the awesome and powerful and holy and divine name of Jesus. Amen.